Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast, and I am back. I am one of your hosts, Byron Pace. My brother is sitting in the room with me. It is snowing I'm, outside. I'm Daryl Pace. Byron forgot yes. to mention that. He only mentioned himself. <laughs> uh, it's snowing outside, and we have two or three dogs sitting in our office right now at the same time as Beth is packaging a shed load of t-shirts that all of you guys have been ordering, and so, mugs. Thank you for the orders. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely outstanding, the amount of orders we've got from the UK to Sweden to, I think, about five or six different states within the United States. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I do ask is people, please, when you read the description, just just read the delivery dates. Uh, we don't mind. We don't mind it, but we've had about 10 or 15 messages from people asking when their delivery would be and when you ordered it said that deliveries would be posted by the 30th of this month which is today the release of the podcast yeah. and uh, there was a very good reason for that is because it was all pre-orders and nothing had arrived yet but now actually the date will change and now it's like seven days after order yes yeah, so all the stock is here now and everything is being shipped out the door so do not worry if you have not received your product yet it is on its way um, i will actually ask if anyone in the first batch of orders anyone received a coffee mug that doesn't look like your design get in touch with us for some reason w- one mug has snuck in that wasn't our design, and yeah. it wasn't our fault either. <laughs> no, we, we didn't. We, we got obviously when it comes, it it's comes in big, big boxes, boxes, and you check them, make sure everything's good. But we didn't check every single mug that we packaged because they come in a box, and somehow, like Daryl said, there was somebody else's mug in there. It was so, a coffee bean house in Liverpool. Yeah. <laughs> so fortunately, the one, uh, the, the one that we know is a mistake. Was a previous is, guest of our Sarah. Yeah. We apologise. <laughs> um, so we know her, but if anybody else then just let us know and we'll get another one out yeah. to you. It's no stress. No stress. We'll get another one out to you. No problem. So, um, as Daryl would have told you, well, actually, that we had a we had an interesting guest on our show one week ago, which was my dad. Mm-hmm. Daryl and my dad uh, gave you an interim show uh, because I was in Nepal, which was, yeah, a pretty awesome trip. And you're going to hear all about that now because that is what this podcast is about. Uh, right at the end, uh, probably about a day or two days before I flew back home, we sat in this outside foyer area of the hotel, myself, uh, Simon and Matt, the, the other American hunter who was there, and we talked basically about the experience that we'd had in the previous three weeks. Uh, mind-blowing like nothing else I've ever done, and I've been fortunate enough to hunt in a, a variety of places around the world, but very, very unique. Great people, great country great place uh and it was tough yeah probably probably one of the hardest sort of extended hunts i've ever done and part do of you, that was due do to you think altitude. i would have made it up there with my leg i think you definitely <laughs> you probably wouldn't have made it off the helipad Daryl. <laughs> no it was we we landed at uh ten thousand feet went down to eight thousand feet base camp and then we topped how, out how high 16, is everest 000. base camp Eighteen thousand. Eighteen something so you made it to 16 i made yeah. it to 16 yeah and actually, I just heard the other day, a friend of ours was in um, Nepal the same time as me, and he's home now, and they were supposed to do a summit, which was 18,000. It wasn't base camp, but it was a summit at 18,000. 
and he didn't quite make it and I think a few other people on that trip didn't make it and just purely for the altitude sickness. I never thought it would affect you as much as you said it would. No. I mean, I, I was thought, I thought it was just people being weak. <laughs> no, I promise you. I mean, I was perfectly capable and able to do stuff every day, just, but it just felt yeah. sick. I spent 5 days with a headache. Yeah. Every morning I woke up and I had this incredibly stiff neck. Like you'd slept, like when you sleep on the sofa and your neck is <laughs> yeah. like cricked up and you wake up and you can barely move. That's how I woke up every single morning that we were at the top camp at 14. Yeah, not very nice. Um, and but, yeah, so popping ibuprofen yeah. and paracetamol to wake up. So you'll notice in this show that it's outside, so you can hear birds, dogs, horns. I think that's about it. Yeah. We were just—it's it's just in the background. It, it, it's quite atmospheric. It's a bit like the one they did in Sweden. Sweden yeah, uh, that was the last time Simon you, was. You can on. hear the really creaky cabin. Well, this one is similar, but you can hear the the bustle of Nepal. Yeah, we were just outside the sort of main area of it. You walk for about twenty minutes, and you were in the hub. Of a it place makes you called feel Tamil. like you're sitting on the table with you. Well, you yeah, we yeah. were sitting around the table, yeah. and at, at somewhere towards the end, I don't know why, but the staff in the hotel decided that they needed to at that moment in time come and put cushions on all the seats in the outside area that they obviously bring in overnight so they don't get damp. And literally, as we're recording, I'm holding the podcast with the big fluffy on top in my hand. I had to stand up for them to put the, the cushion <laughs> underneath my bum and everyone around the table had to do it. So I think you hear a little bit of that <laughs> somewhere towards the end as well. So yeah, you're going to hear all about that. It was a, a cool trip. Check out our social media. I haven't posted that many pictures yet, but a few. We're going to be putting more up. I will now. Over, yeah, over the next on Instagram and on Facebook as well. And the bonuses. I was there because I was filming it. So I have no details about when the film's going to be out yet, but you will find out on the podcast sometime yeah. at the start of next because year. We're in the know of when it's going to be made because yeah. we're making it. <laughs> uh, where you can watch it because it's going to be yeah, it's going to be something else. Very, very few people have hunted there. And as far as I know, very few people have filmed it. And only one other professional production company have filmed there. That's cool. As in the in the hunting area that we were in. So we're one of two, which <laughs> is incredibly cool. Anyway, two other things before we get into the podcast. We are going to be at a night vision demo with Scott Country International on the 8th of November in Perthshire. I can't remember exactly no, where No, I it think is. it's further south than that. I think it's... Do you want to look that up I think while it's I in give the, the rest of the details? I it's not in the borders. No, it's not in the borders. It's near um, Trockery by Dunkeld. Yeah, it's by Dunkeld. Yeah, by Dunkeld. Yeah. Well, actually, you don't need to look it up, Dale, because any, all anyone needs to do is go onto the Scott Country International website and you will find the, de the details for the demo. And evening. the Facebook page. And the Facebook page. Uh, it's open for everyone. Yeah. And we're going to be there, yeah. recording a podcast. So if you want to, um, did I say? Apparently, I said November. It's going to be in December, December the eighth, because we're November. already well past yeah. November the eighth. Yeah. Thank you, Beth. Uh, so we're going to be there. Lots of cool kit, sort of the latest technology, night vision and thermal. So worth checking out from that point of view. And also, if you want to come and chat to us, uh, we're going to be recording live with various people, so you have a chance to shoot some. And we'll get to shoot test some chat. We'll get to test some some gear. Yeah, maybe we can get to take, take some home for Christmas. In fact, no, I'm not sure. I might not coincide uh, fully because we're going to be doing uh, an extra show in December like we did last year because it was quite a popular show and we had a lot of emails after it. And it was 
kit we recommend for Christmas. So we're going to bring it out next week, which is the start of December, which means that if you like any of the kit we're recommending, you have time to order it for yourself. Yeah, a week, the week today, we're going to try and do a product. And show. just like last year, these are generally products that we have purchased ourselves or we just use because we like them. That's as simple as that. No, mm-hmm. no sponsorship involved. Oh, we've we've been in a lot of different environments in the last twelve months. So, I'm certainly going to pull out some of the kit that I took to Nepal and tell you what worked there. And also, I'll probably talk a little bit about when when I'm talking about the kit about the the actual environment and variability of the environment there and how we how we use kit. So, um, Daryl will get his thinking hat on as well yeah. and pick up some other things. So I, I think, think one of the things is going to be first aid. <laughs> I think first aid, yeah, that'll yeah. be one. And boots is a hundred percent going to be another. Yeah, and some clothing, clothing, some clothing. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go from your feet to the top of your head. Yes, and I have one hat, which is my favorite. <laughs> so we we will cover that. We have a competition winner from. No, we don't have a competition winner. We do have a competition winner. We do. From last week's competition. Sorry, we do. And Daryl's going to tell you what it is. So this was running for the week, and uh, we had. I think over 300 entries, three or 400 entries between Facebook and Instagram. So thank you very much. We had over 100 in the first six hours, uh, which was crazy. And this was to win our little package put together by Scott Country. And this was for the, the Silent Crush. It was the, the, the Wild Game Trophy Cam or Camera Trap. And then it was the Canine a jumper and two caps as well and it was very popular and quite the, a package yeah it is quite a package i, I think i i priced it at over 200 pounds i think it was 220 oh. it was it it's hard to you can't put a value on a cap that's the problem I know. everyone likes a cap because you can't get you can't always get these yeah. and this is going to be perfect timing for christmas exactly so jace price and you were picked on facebook but we're, we will put a link on Facebook for everyone to listen, and you can find out if you want or not. And like everyone else, for this one, we'll actually give you a shorter period of time to pick this up. I think not, Otherwise it's not, gonna roll not, over. not a month. I think it'll be a week. It's going to have to be a week in order to get it out for Christmas. To get it out for Christmas. So we'll give you a week, and if you do not listen to this in a week and message us, then we will pick the next person that entered yeah. the competition. So it's, it's only just going to be bad luck, I'm afraid, but it's that time of the year, people want stuff for Christmas. <laughs> we, and we have 400 people to pick from, yeah. so. <laughs> so we're not sure. <laughs> yeah. So that is that. We have uh, a new competition for this month, but we also have a completely separate one, which is a ticket giveaway. You will have heard us talking about uh, us going to be at the Northern Shooting Show uh, next year. I am super, super looking forward to it. Not only are we going to have a whole bunch of our our products, all of our our t-shirts are going to be there, mugs, some extra stuff. We're 100% going to have our coffees ready for then. We've just confirmed that we're going to be set up. Coffees? Yes. This is the first time everyone's hearing about this. Oh, it is. Yeah. Well, I think we ha- did mention it we maybe did. a year ago. This is happening. Yeah, because we, we've. I think we're, we're almost settled on yeah. how, how we're going to deliver this. So we're going to have some coffees, but we'll tell you more about that later. Bags of coffee for people to buy. Yep. We are going to be set up in our massive 15-man canvas tent that we use for our... Uh, wilderness hunts which we've actually just finished one of see if i can remember and tell you a little bit about that before we get into the show um so i don't know exactly where in the show yet we're still working that out but you're not going to be able to miss us and of course and very importantly <clears throat> we are launching 
or already have launched the very first hunting film festival in the UK and it's going to be premiering on the Friday night of the Northern Shooting Show which is the night before the a- the show actually begins. So that's basically when everyone's just finished setting up. Yep. The uh, All the information for actually entering the film festival is on our website, thepacebrothers.com uh, but what we're going to do is have a short list of our top picks of the films and show them in a cinema theater within the grounds on the Friday night. There's going to be about 80 people there and we have tickets to give away to you. You will also be able to purchase tickets if you're not lucky enough to be, be um, to win some because yeah. you're going to be able to win some through us. It's a very small show. number of people uh, that will be able to purchase them. Yes. Uh, but and the money is going to be going towards a conservation project. Yeah. Uh, so yes, we have a pair of tickets to give away, and all you're going to have to do for that is go over to the DNA Film Festival Facebook page, DNA Film Festival Facebook page, and look at the top post on there, and you will see how you enter. It'll be a, a sharing or tagging type affair, yeah. and we'll pick someone at random. I we do ask that if you do enter the competition, please make sure you are around to go yeah on the friday night. on the friday night so that we don't have to try and give them away again yeah um it's it's yeah it's going to be cool because it's such a small number of people there's going to be a lot of a lot of editors and industry people there aside from uh the fairly limited number of tickets for the for the general shooting public but it's going to be super exciting Okay, are we almost... Um, no, we need the competition for this podcast, which is a set of interchangeable lens Smith Optics shooting glasses. And for that, uh, again, check out the social media, Instagram and our Facebook page. Uh, and what we're going to ask you is, what essential kit can you not live without? So we're going to tell you, give you one of ours with a picture and you just comment or leave a picture below and tell us what the one item is that you can't live without in the field and we will pick somebody in the next show. Yep. Um, oh, shop. We, in fact, we mentioned shop well, earlier. We mentioned the shop kind of, haven't we? Yeah, but uh, we can mention it again. If mm-hmm. you would like to purchase anything from our shop, then all our products are now in stock. They are. You can hear r- probably hear rustling yeah, in the background. you can hear rustling in the background. And that is stuff from the shop being packed to go to the post office often. Yep, it is. Uh, so we, I think for the United Kingdom, it's about the 20th to 21st of December to get your orders in for in time for Christmas. For the rest of the world, it's about the 14th. So if you are from the United States or in Europe, because that's where the most of our orders come from, then you have to put in your order by the 14th to kind of guarantee it's going to be there in time for Christmas. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to mention was that um, we have one space left in a hunt in January because someone had to pull out at the very last minute. Everything was booked up and has been booked up for months. Uh, The 19th to the 21st of uh, January, there is one space left for a wilderness hunt. We've just put up some pictures from the hunt that completed a couple of days ago. It was awesome. The four guys were great. We had some pretty extreme conditions, so much so that we had to take the Land Rover out of the hill early because we were worried about it getting stuck in the snow, and we've had bucket loads of snow since. Uh, It was, yeah, it it was pretty... I have to say, in terms of snow, it's probably some of the most extreme snow conditions I've actually actually hunted in. Uh, We couldn't work out where camp was As the Norwegians were chuckling. Yes, they were. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But true for me. Uh, 
Yeah. So if you want to uh, look into that, again, details on our website, thepacebrothers.com. And for uh, currently, they you will find them on our, our website. The, the cost per person is £1,400. But if you are a podcast listener, and because we've had someone pull out at the very last minute, uh, let us know via email that you are a podcast listener because you will have listened to this. And we're going to give away the next one for 1100 So uh, a good discount. Just let us know on email that you've listened to this message. Hey, and we'll you get to take the out. meat home. Yes, you do. I'm pretty sure it tells you in the... In the yeah, it does. It, it does. does. Everybody has a carcass built into the price. So. The guys had so much meat that just gone, they could, couldn't could fit it in their freezer properly. Yeah, <laughs> we just heard from them today. Uh, they seem to have a good time, and uh, they've tagged us in a whole bunch of stuff on Instagram. Yeah, we'll be, start sharing some of their pictures. You'll start seeing pictures very soon uh, on Instagram of that. And that is it for... I, well, feel, I feel like there's more, because uh, the last two months of kind of blurred by well, i haven't even been at home for you haven't been month. at home i just i sat on the sofa for three weeks kind of spaced out so i i feel like the podcast i i feel like i haven't spoken to the podcast listeners properly because i can't even remember what's been going on you probably weren't even quite coherent <laughs> when you put the, the last one together because you're so high on your antibiotics no. um but I, we're going to be speaking to you again in a week's time with our product show. So if we have forgotten anything, we can tell you in seven days' time. Oh, Thank and oh. I want to say we are thinking about bringing out car stickers for the podcast listeners. And so basically, the idea was, you know, local radios. You, well, in fact, they probably still do. It. I think TFM. The, still TFM, does it. where we live. Yeah, yeah, where we live. TFM does it, where it's the car sticker, and they would. Once a month, if they were around town, one of the presenters around town, they saw someone with a TFM car sticker, they won, I think it was a thousand pounds. We're not giving away a thousand pounds, but unless we get a new generous sponsor that wants <laughs> yeah. to give us lots yeah. of if chunks there's a new, of thousand If there's a new generous sponsor that wants to give away a thousand pounds at a time, uh, let us know. Uh, but yeah, my point is, we want to give car stickers away, and the point is that if we go to game fairs or we're just driving up and down the country, that there'll be a whole bunch of people with our the podcast stickers. If you think this is a good idea and you'd be interested, let us know. Email us podcast yeah. at paceproductionsuk.com. We'll try to get that sorted, and uh, we'll give them away for for free. In fact, maybe just pay for the postage. It'll be it'll be pennies. Yeah, we'll we'll make it so it is as cheap as possible to get them out to everyone. Yeah, uh, or or we'll have them at shows so you can pick them up for free. Yeah. So we'll have them free at shows and then maybe just postage kind of postage cost, which yeah. will probably be 50p. Yeah, or, it'll, yeah. it'll be or nothing. That. Yeah, or, that, or we'll that. give them out with orders as well. Oh, that is yeah, a good we'll idea. give them out with orders. So that gives you an incentive to yeah. buy stuff. And, and guys, I'm not saying you need to buy loads and loads from our shop, but you should. Um, <laughs> we do give a percentage to charity. Uh, it also helps support us doing things like this the podcast yeah. it really does it does it helps help helps boost our ability to bring you great guests yeah uh and our postage costs are fixed so regardless of how much you order especially for the guys in the united states guys and girls because we've had guys and girls ordering um in the united states the more you order the price postage doesn't go up or down because it's very complicated working out postage so we kind of just have this kind of fair fair postage scheme yeah we try and try and make everything as affordable as possible. Yeah. And with that, I think we're done. You can hear from us in two weeks. Enjoy the show. This is going to turn out to be quite a long podcast, but there's uh, three of us around the table, including me. It is very interesting. Um, well, Daryl just listened to yeah. it today. So. I wasn't there, and I've just listened to it, so I enjoyed it. Matt, Simon, welcome to the Interwilderness Podcast. Simon, this is the second time you've been on, and the last time you were on, we were also 
in a kind of similar situation where we had just finished a rather spectacular hunting experience. Matt, this is the, the first one you've been on, so thank you very much for joining us. We are currently sat in the middle of Kathmandu in Nepal, which is why, uh, for the people listening, you can hear that in the background, horns and lots of other commotion. We've just returned from, what is it, nine, ten days in the mountains, Simon? I think it was uh, eight nights and nine days. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> Meant to be 11, but weather forced us to come back early by a couple of days. Nepal is not necessarily a destination that most people would think of for hunting. What it, Simon, just explain what the, what's available here and what the draw was for you to put this hunt together. Um, I think what's here is, you know, the probably the most challenging environment in the world. You've got the tallest mountains in the world in the Himalayas. Um, and you've got some very, very unusual species that live at extremely high altitudes. So um, a friend of mine came here a couple of years ago and since then I've been looking to plan my own trip out here. Um, I think as a, as a hunter or an adventurer, this is probably about the pinnacle of where you can go um, with a hunting expedition. And it is an expedition, it's not just a hunt, it is a lot more than that. There's a lot of preparation and there's a lot of support you need on the ground here to effectively get the job done. So, um, you know, I think this is one of the ultimate destinations to come hunting. Pretty, um, uh, it's, it's not a destination that a lot of people come to, so there's not much information out there about it, which adds to the allure for me, um, the kind of mystique, and <clears throat> going where others have not gone is quite exciting, and there's not many destinations like that in the hunting world now, so that was definitely part of it. Uh, and what about, what about you, Matt? You, I mean, we, we're gonna talk in a little bit about the kind of species that we were hunting. You really enjoy sheep hunting. You're from North America, but what was the draw here? I mean, you have so much hunting in the States. Why come all the way over to Nepal? Um, kind of like Simon said, you know, I think it's the kind of the next step, maybe, for mountain hunters uh, in regards to elevation uh, and the physicality of the hunt. Uh, that's that's one thing I think that makes you a little anxious coming into this hunt. It was that, for me anyway. Yeah. yeah, you can be in great physical shape, but you truly do not know how you'll be affected by the elevation. Uh, I did quite a bit of training leading into this hunt and, uh, you know, I still felt it. Uh, it was actually quite tough on the third day. But, uh, but yeah, it's just it's just kind of a stair-step effect. Um, I'd done some hunting in Azerbaijan and kind of saw the steepness of those mountains and elevation and this would be kind of your next step I guess you could say but yeah that was the allure for me is just testing myself kind of the next the next test there physically and, and mentally so and how t tell um, tell the people listening a little bit about the hunting that you've done in the states for sheep just to paint a picture because especially in the UK where most of our listeners are they don't they won't really have a concept of what sheep hunting is about and then compare that to you know what we were doing here um, I've been fortunate to have hunted all four sheep in North America and yeah, of the four they live in, in, in very different uh, areas, very different terrain. Uh, the doll sheep being, uh, I hunted that one in the Northwest Territories. Um, more of, I wouldn't say rolling hills, but lower elevation, um, not a lot of vegetation. And then, of course, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn there is close to the Canadian and uh, the Canada-U.S. border. Um, that hunt a little bit steeper, uh, cover a little bit more miles there in a day, just because the elevation in is bad. And then, of course, you have your Desert Bighorn, which uh, hunted there in Mexico. Uh, it's quite hot uh, and dry, and 
that hunt uh, really test you physically as well uh, in the area where we were. Uh, put in a lot of miles every day with a lot of high temperatures. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's quite, each, each of the four offers a, a unique experience. Um, but yeah, this, this one here is, is very different in the fact that the elevation is just so much higher. Uh, sometimes three times the, the height and elevation of what you might see uh, in North America. What, um, I'm, I'm gonna go around the, the, the table now and, and talk about how it affected each of us, but how did it, what were the symptoms and how did the actual altitude affect you here in Nepal? I, mean, I think we were all okay up to around sort of 10,000 and then we started to sort of see effects of that. Um, so the people you know, can understand I, I, how you, I had how some, you feel. Yeah, yeah, I had some concern coming into this hunt with the climate change, uh, coming from uh, going to a, such a dry environment. Uh, I have sinus issues, so on day one, when we took the chopper in, I got a slight headache, and I just chalked it up as, hey, you know, sinus issues. Well, it continued to day two, and oh, no big deal, it, it'll go away. Well, then I think day four is when the headache really I think we'll be at 14,000 feet at that point. 14.3 or 14.3. Was that camp three? <coughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it was 14.3, 14,300 yeah. 14, feet, so. We landed around 10,000 feet, dropped to eight, and then within three days we were at 14,000 feet. And the morning I woke up to make, I guess, my first stalk at a blue sheet, we covered 2,000 more feet that morning. And at that point, when I got in, position to start glassing and we had spotted a band of rams. Um, I really started to feel it. I knew all right, this is going to be a rough day, really rough day. And uh, I was fortunate to harvest one the same morning and then on the way down is when it really hit me the nausea. I got really nauseous. I kind of toughed it out when I saw you guys. Because <laughs> so we were back at camp. Yeah, you guys were at camp. Um, and as soon as you left, the, the the rapid increase in elevation and then the rapid decrease back to camp within two or three hours really got me. Uh, nauseousness, uh, I vomited a few times, but I guess that's just part of the part of the hunt and part of the part of the challenge that you're willing to pick up and take. So, mm. I know that. I mean, the three or four days when we were we were up high, I was never firing on on full cylinders. Every morning I woke up, I had a headache and I managed to alleviate it with uh, a little bit of chemical help with the paracetamol or ibuprofen. But Simon, you had a sort of similar experience with uh, the ups and downs of coping with the altitude. Let's talk people through that over the, over the, the period of, of landing you know, until we left. Yeah, so we landed at about 10,000 feet in the helicopter and on the first day we walked down to um, about 8,000 feet. So we dropped 2,000 feet in elevation. <clears throat> and at that point I knew that um, maybe I should have done a little bit more preparation and it was going to be much tougher um, but I didn't know whether it was fitness or altitude at that point so it's it was quite deceiving I didn't know I felt out of breath a lot um, and it was just a struggle to pull down enough oxygen to replenish the muscles when you've been burning them even downhill you, you, you require quite a lot of oxygen and lactic acid builds up around your knees and in your calves um, <clears throat> uh, day two was brutal we climbed four and a half thousand feet in a day and it was only four miles travel but the height was 
it was four and a half thousand feet and we're talking not just trekking we were climbing cliff faces fall and die was a very apparent danger um, <laughs> I think if you slipped um, you know at any moment it was very very hazardous it's no exaggeration you know it, it really it, was it, yeah there was no safety climbing ropes but then you're watching you know and we'll probably come on to this there were 26 Sherpas with us to move the camp around and they had things like pelly cases on their heads mm-hmm. and they were climbing up the same terrain but then I guess if you're born in that terrain you learn how to move around it plus the altitude they probably got a much higher haemoglobin count than we have which you know helps move oxygen around the bloodstream so um, uh, I was physically very very tired on day two and again I didn't know if it was altitude or whether it was just fatigue um, but I actually felt emotionally really battered as well by the end of that day and I thought to myself have I bitten off more than I can chew am I actually capable of doing this and I had a lot of soul searching on that first night because it was truly truly um, punishing Um, it probably was a bit of altitude a bit of fitness Um, uh, I'll come on to what happened the next day which cheered me up quite a lot but uh, we then um, after uh, 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 well we hunted a tar the next morning which was very fortuitous it was right outside where we put camp so yeah explain explain what happened that morning because (coughs) it was the, the, the really strange thing about really the start of that hunt is what you and I both heard during the night so we, we heard, um, I've hunted tar before in New Zealand, so I was familiar with the sound that they make, which is, um, if a ro- roebuck for the UK listeners barks, um, a, uh, for a US listener, the whitetail make a snort wheeze, for Nepalese listeners, there's like a chirping sound that the tar makes. Sounds like a bird. It sounds like a bird, yeah. And if anyone's hunted sheep or goat, they might be familiar that they make that kind of strange, quite high-pitched whistling sound, which you could mix up for a bird. Um, We heard that in the night, and I was sort of like in and out of like weird altitude consciousness and, you know, body battered from the day before. Um, And uh, we got up at 5 a.m. before it was light, um, and we were going to leave under head torches to go and have a look for some tar. And... um, uh, the guide, the head guide, man came over and was like really overexcited um, because they were a group of tar literally 200 yards away from where we'd put our camp. So it was just, you know, I mean, in hunting, especially in these difficult terrains, you have to take the chances when they present themselves to you. So the hunt was on literally the second that we got out of our tents. Um, the camp was waking up and so you had like cooks and other people kind of getting ready for the day and clanging pots and stuff whilst we're all like in the middle of a stakeout for some tar at just outside our tent so it was there was like pressure and um, uh, as the light came up the tar saw us and moved around the mountain um, which wasn't you know an easy stalk by Scottish um, you know comparison it was you know boulder fields which were six to ten feet high and it was uh, you know again it was a climb not a scramble to get to where they'd been we went round there again altitude was playing a part every three or four steps I made it was kind of absolutely exhausted and then it took longer to replenish the oxygen we hadn't really acclimatized at that point we just arrived no, I mean it was bam straight into it and um, uh, I managed to uh, the head guide charged off like a tar himself to see where they'd moved to and we got round the corner to where they'd gone into sort of like a little bit a lie of dead ground and um, and I could see the um, uh, mature bull which was a fabulous 12 year old mature bull I mean it, again it was you know we were gifted that opportunity it was a fabulous opportunity the light was just coming up I was feeling you know a bit emotional from from the day before and just very emotional to be in the Himalayas and um, I was able to put in a you know a, a 
good shot, killed him you know, cleanly straight away. It was only about 100 yards again in the terrain. That's very, very unusual, but you've got to take these chances. And um, yeah, it was a beautiful, absolutely what I'd always dreamed of shooting a you know 12-year-old ball Himalayan tar. And I think they only get to 13 or 14. So he really, and that's very old. So he was absolutely at the kind of zenith of what right I wanted. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're literally then sort of watching, you know, over a Himalayan range, the sun come up and yeah, it was a really special moment actually it's probably one of the the real highlights of my my hunting career i felt very you know blessed to be in that scenario and um you know we don't the right to have the shot on the animal it was a, a tough hunt you know um wasn't particularly tough that morning but you have to take into account everything that happened the day before as well together so. yeah I mean, a lot of people have shot himalayan tar but very few people have actually shot them in the himalayas that most people's mind will actually skip to New Zealand. Yeah, and you know, not to do down New Zealand, I've shot one in New Zealand myself and it was a fabulous experience, but you know, it's like shooting a muntjac in the UK. They're not from the UK, um, and you know, wouldn't it be special to shoot one where they actually, that their habitat that they evolved in, and this is where they evolved, not just were put there, somewhere that they genuinely evolved. Now, interestingly, um, they spend more time in the trees than people would think, and they don't spend, all the classic pictures of tar in New Zealand are, are them out on snowy peaks, that's not actually the habitat that they're in they're actually more f further down in the forest and in yeah, the yeah. jungle so that was something that, I mean for a picture opportunity it's great to get them on the top of a hill which I did um, they were um, what the guides called connection time which we've referred to as the rut time um, and uh, they were or, or the roar in New Zealand um, they were um, uh, high and you know p poking about and enjoying each other's company shall we say so <laughs> they were out of the trees and um yeah they only issue 10 licenses a year in nepal um yeah, so, so there's a pretty small number of people yeah, there's a chance yeah i mean look in the last 10 years less than 100 people have shot tar yeah. so in the himalayas so yeah i feel extremely privileged i mean it's a real i mean an amazing thing to have done so um, it's not lost on me just talking about the them seeing them in the trees i think one of the reasons that we were discussing it on the way up is we were we were all quite surprised how high the tree line was here yeah way higher than in europe yeah, yeah. Uh, if you so if you, unusual for us to see that if you go to the french alps and i've been fortunate enough i think i've i don't know hunted a dozen times in the french alps now the tree line is much much lower <laughs> Um, um, and I've hunted the Swiss Alps and the Bavarian Alps. It, it is much, much lower, but here, um, the snow line and the tree line seem to be much higher up. Mm. I think maybe, and we've discussed it and debated it, we're closer to the equator here, so the, the temperate, uh, temperature is, is higher because we're closer to the equator, um, and it's only because of the altitude that you get the cold weather. Mm. So actually, Nepal's quite warm. It never really goes below we're, freezing. We're sitting in T-shirts outside. Yeah, and, yeah, right yeah. Um, um, and as a result of that, you get, you know, um, the, the Kathmandu, do, which is how much what's the elevation 4,000 feet something yeah, like that, that yeah. it never really gets below freezing here even in the winter so it's you know um, and it gets up to about 20 every day so that's you know again I guess because it's closer to the equator and once you get up high the only reason it gets colder is because of the extra elevation yeah Matt um, Simon uh, kind of alluded to, or I've no one of you I can't remember now we're talking about the number of people who were there to help us the porters uh, and everyone else and the, the cook and who basically supported what is an expedition. And it maybe sounds, I mean, how, how many were there in total? Did we decide how many? 26, 26. Plus us, so we had nearly a group of 30 on the hill. <laughs> and yeah. it, it almost—it sounds from the outside, 30 people supporting a hunt, almost ridiculous. You know, why would you need 30 people? Most of the stuff you've done in North America is you, know, you and a guide, if I'm not mistaken. So it's kind of like self-supported, you're carrying your sure. own food. And it maybe would make people think that it's not difficult because of that. 
having experienced both ends of the spectrum, can you maybe explain to people why it's necessary to have that whole team in place to hunt in a place like this? Well, first, they make camp very, very comfortable from dining tents to a toilet tent to a cook tent. Uh, and then, of course, we each had our own individual, was that a three or four man tent? Mm. Uh, so it's qu quite comfortable, which is nice on such a physical hunt like this. Um, as far as 26 go, you know, I think what well, were there maybe there was a cook, an assistant cook, and probably three or four more helpers there. Um, and uh, what I did notice is that yes, there were quite a few there, but they all had their own job. Mm. They all worked. There was, there was a hunting team. There was a camp team. There was a cooking team. Um, and it was definitely you weren't being waited on hand and foot. I think reflecting on it, it would have taken us three times the amount of time if we'd gone on our own. Sure. So, and, and we would have been in massive danger. So yeah. it was the safety net more than anything. It's such a hostile environment that 26 people is there as a safety net to look after you more than anything. Um, and, and although it might sound quite decadent and a bit Edwardian to take an expedition of nearly 30 people into the Himalayas, and it, and it is, it, let's not be, you know, let's not beat around the bush, it is quite decadent to do that. But I think if you didn't do that, firstly, you'd possibly end up dying and um, secondly if you didn't die it would take you a month to get the animals so mm. yeah. Yeah. and then on actual stock where there's th there were three guys with me how many were with you on the actual stock for your sheep yeah you had a guy to Maybe. get the animal out you had a scout and then you had the guide yeah. um, and the scout and the guide were working together to locate animals again if you're doing that on your own in an environment you didn't know um, at altitude with all the other variables that were being thrown at us on a daily basis like boulder fields and <laughs> other things um I, I just don't think it would be possible so well i think one point that 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 really sets the the north american mountain hunting apart from this is that in north america you're able to move light and fast i think here you can move light but you can't move fast and so you know it's it's just a totally different type of hunting um and it's but how amazing was it to have that cultural experience as well? We were we lived with you know a group of Sherpas for eight nine days. You know that is from my point of view. Uh, you know these are people that go up to Everest Base Camp and Camp One and Camp Two on Everest. You know Tech, one of our favourite Sherpas there, um, had some awesome stories about helping climbers go up Everest. So it's incredible that. Isn't yeah, it? and and t you know just being around those people. You know it it wasn't it, this and I'd hope people look at it, it wasn't really about the hunt, it's about the experience and the adventure. I mean, pulling the trigger is wonderful and it's a reason to be in the mountains, but you know, the cultural interface with the Sherpas and the Nepalese people has been really wonderful and that's been a, you know, as big a part of the experience as the hunt itself. That's right, in, in regards to tech, I mean, such a gentle and humble servant, I guess. Very happy to help. Yeah, very Always happy. smile on his face. And then, yeah, toward the end of the trip, you find out that this, this guy goes back and forth between base camp and all the way to camp two. Camp so two, yeah. Back so and forth through the Kumba Ice Fall, which is very hazardous, but, yeah. uh, but such a great guy. Yeah, and we, you know, we, we flew in by helicopter, hour and a half from Kathmandu into the Dorpatan Hunting Reserve, which is a former... Um, royal hunting area that's it's the only area you can hunt in nepal um which is fascinating in its own history but it took us an hour and a half to fly by helicopter into the area 
the Sherpas, it'll take them a week, seven days to walk back from that area to Kathmandu. So, you know, that's when our hunt finished, there's, you know, they had another seven days worth of journey to go. But that's normal. People in Kathmandu are very, sorry, in Nepal are very used to long journeys and they, they judge the, the culture. Yeah, it? they judge things by days. Like, how long will it take to get there? Not like three hours, three days. Yeah. You know, they, they judge everything by the amount of days you need to walk. So. Mm. Matt, the I think we mentioned blue sheep already. A lot of people might have, there was light bulbs going off in their head when they heard blue sheep because, uh, to be honest, I had probably read it somewhere, but I didn't know even know what a blue sheep looked like until I started to look in for this trip. When did you identify with blue sheep and the sort of the, the history of it? And obviously, you don't get them uh, in in North America or very few other places in the world. You know, there were a few publications in the U.S., uh, Grand Slam magazine, and I think I had seen some stuff there on YouTube, a little bit here and there. And then um, <clears throat> a guy from Alaska, Cole Kramer, which some guys listening probably are familiar with, uh, he was here last year. Um, and he gave me, actually he was here this spring, gave me quite a bit of info uh, info there. And then the group that I went to Azerbaijan with had mentioned it as well, and so it just kind of got me intrigued about it and I kept doing a little bit of research here and there and it's such a unique mountain experience that you know, I told myself hey if I get the chance you know I need to take it. Um, and Simon the blue sheep has had a little bit of a, an allure for you. Uh, uh, what is it? Well it sounds a bit like it's from Lord of the Rings really. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to the mountains for the blue sheep you know yeah. it does it, it's something it's the highest altitude um, species that you can hunt so Marco Polo tops out about 15,000 feet and blue sheep go up to 16 and more. So um, I think as a physical challenge and a mental challenge, that's what I felt was uh, appealing about the species was that it was, you know, it, as, a, as a Ovis or Capra hunt, this is the highest you can go. And I think that, that definitely makes it um, very exciting. The animal itself, peculiar looking thing it's sort of um, half goat half sheep you know it is a it has a sort of gerbily head it has a very strange horn formation they don't look like sheep horns but they don't look like goat horns either They're, it's a very strange looking creature um, markings on the animal they've got a very beautiful kind of black line down their their side down their flank um, and yeah I think they're just uh, very hardy um, and then incidentally their their predator is the snow leopard so yeah. we that, were in snow leopard country we were in snow leopard country so and the guides regularly see snow leopards there so you know um, uh, someone said to me that tar and um, blue sheep in uh, Nepal were quite easy animals to hunt because not many people hunt them. Ah, uh -uh, that was not true. These, n not many people might hunt them, but they get hunted. Yeah. Yes, they get hunted, and, the, and there's eagles, and there's all, there's jackals, there's other things there, um, and the snow leopard is a formidable predator. Mm. And um, you know, surprisingly, well, I, mean, I say surprisingly, but surprisingly towards humans, we were told that they're quite aggressive. Yeah, I mean, most cats are quite sort of uh, shy and will mm. run away from, from man, but apparently these boys will come at you, so... Um, we didn't see any, We didn't sadly, see any, so, yeah. yeah. So, uh, although one night um, uh, when we were at Camp 3 at 14 and 14.3, I think it was, um, some of the Sherpas decided that two snow leopards had come into camp and raided camp that <laughs> night. On investigation, it was a group of five jackals, so, um, yeah, it's funny how these things get exaggerated. Um, and, um, uh, the, I mean, the Sherpas are very spiritual people, 
people. So they are, yeah. You know, which was, you know, that was another lovely thing. They're all so warm and, and you know, they're either Hindu or Buddhist and they all rub along very nicely together. There's no, no, um, no friction. No friction yeah. at all. Everybody seems to be, you know, wanting to help each other out and there's a very sort of tender caringness in camp. And, and um, but with that spirituality, there's sort of, um, yeah, uh, things get exaggerated from some jackals <laughs> to, to snow leopards, which was quite funny. It was, uh, and we talked about this on the way, on the way out. It's when you have such a long period of time when you're away from the, the comforts that we enjoy in everyday life, it's very easy to kind of rub people up the wrong way or have little fallouts, disagreements. But it was just a camp situation that just flowed. And I think partly the people there, but also the way that they put it together and how, how helpful they were, the, the porters and the, the Sherpas and everyone else. It, it, yeah, I think it, it just be hard, hard to be upset with someone there everybody yeah. was nice and the three of us rubbed along really well together <laughs> and you know it was a high pressure high stress situation uh, I would say environmental stress no other stress than that it was um, you know, physical stress um, and but you know they were there to tend to you and make sure you had everything that you needed anytime any of us felt like we had any you know effects of altitude sickness there were three or four people that would almost come and sit and watch you and make sure you were okay mm. um, they quite attentive to that very much so and it's not to be I mean acute mountain sickness is something that kills people so um, they were, um, and I think they had a hunter last year that got it so badly they nearly had to evacuate him. And that was at 12,500 feet. We went up to 16. So um, it's it's something that needs to be taken seriously, and they do take it seriously. It might sound a little bit um, cavalier the way that you know we climbed cliff faces and so on. For them, that's everyday life. For us, we don't have we've ironed risk out of our everyday lives. For them, they've got a lot of risk around them. So although to us it seemed quite dangerous to them, it was just another walk in the hills. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know in terms of um the the thing that they you know haven't got any control over which is um the um mountain sickness um the minute that you know you mentioned or said or looked off color or threw up or had a headache they were right on it and i think that that gave me confidence um we all had global rescue and if we needed it you know there was a big safety piece in the background on all of this um but um yeah they were they, they you know one of the things I'll take away from this is that altitude is is very very tough. Yeah, I mean even even the the head guide who you mentioned, man earlier, he even was suffering on one day, not to the extent that we were, but he was feeling the effects of it. Uh, yeah, and it, he spent his life up there. If you go up quickly and down quickly, um, I think that's. I mean, it's like getting the bends. If you come up too quickly, if you've been diving, uh, it's the same kind of thing, but the other way round. Um, pressure, uh, the, the air pressure can really give you, you know, a pretty horrendous headache, and then you know. Leading you're basically up, leading up to no yeah, oxygen. <laughs> yeah, li leading up to all sorts of bad symptoms. I quite like the idea of hallucinating. Apparently, that's something we had some. <laughs> at pretty, the extreme end. Yeah, at the extreme end. You, are, you yeah, you hallucinate and you you stop talking sense and you behave drunk, which probably at sixteen thousand feet might be quite a good fun. So <laughs> I know. I know some of my dreams that I had when I was there. Um, one of my, one of my weird dreams was that I dreamt that um, I had been commissioned to write a piece for Field Sports magazine on the perfect shot for game birds. So I got Kevin Robertson, who wrote the perfect <laughs> shot, to um, uh, do a whole piece on woodcock, pheasant, partridge. That is incredibly bizarre. It was, but it's so vivid. It's yeah. so vivid. But anyway, that was one of my weird uh, high altitude dreams that I had. Uh, Matt, the day that you went to go and hunt your blue sheep was the day was. It one or two days after Simon shot his tar? I think it was two days. Two days yeah, after. Yeah, because we transferred moved, camp. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it was an early start. Talk me through that day. I mean, you, you kind of explained earlier how physically tough it was because of how rapidly you, you went up. But talk about that terrain for people. Paint that picture so that people can join you on that 
that part of your hunt because it was, uh, it well, was quite if, special. Yeah. We saw we saw the day after where you'd been. Uh, well, if you recall coming in the night before to Camp Three, um, you and I made a push there right before dark because I'd almost some, forgotten yeah, actually. Yeah. Some blue sheep were spotted where we were to set up camp. Um, that was also the day that we came up the ridge. It was, uh, wasn't as steep as moving into camp two, but there was a really long pull oh, up that brutal. ridge. And uh, it got really cold there when the sun went down. And once we kind of nestled in and glassed a little bit and realized that, hey, there's not a, not a mature ram here, we both kind of looked at each other and said, I don't feel good. And so the plan was made later that night that it would be my turn to go up since Simon uh, had harvested his tar the day before. And um, I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't know if I've got the energy for this, but hey, it's my turn, I'm gonna go. Uh, the next morning, got up around, I guess 5.30, left right before, about 20 minutes before the sun came up. We were using headlamps there for almost half an hour or so. Um, it was a smaller, I guess that was the first time that I'd been part of a smaller group uh, during this hunt. Uh, it was just four of us total. And uh, of course I'm trying to keep up with man, the lead guide. And uh, like Simon said, you know, grew up in the same mountains there. It was his backyard. The beast in the mountains. Oh yeah. And <laughs> I just can recall him asking me to cut off my headlamp. And I just tried to put one foot in front of the other for I guess about two hours. and. I got to a ridge where he had already gone, the scout had already gone ahead, spotted the band that man thought was in there. And so then things kind of get a little bit more excited. And so uh, anything you're feeling physically or mentally, it kind of went away there for probably 20 minutes or so. Adrenaline started. Yeah, adrenaline started pumping and um, all the, the altitude effects went away slightly. And um, the ram that we were after, after kept feeding up the drainage and we kept trying to get around on him, get around on him. And finally man just made the decision, hey, we've got to go all the way to the top and then we'll come back and shoot back down on him. Um, and so that was done and we got above him, ranged him at, I'm gonna put this in yards, not meters. Um, he was ranged at 187 yards but due to the angle, you know, man had put me in a nice position, but due to the steep angle, I think the, after angle compensation, it came back at like 121, the steepest shot I've taken to date. Um, as soon as the shot was made though, uh, we realized he was down, uh, elevation kicked back in again. Yeah. And I think, like I said earlier, it was, it was downhill from there. But uh, it's a great day to be on the mountain, great situation to experience. Uh, along with a great guide like Man, who I think will always um, keep in mind as one of the better ones that that, that we've had. Yeah. Uh, but it was a great day. Well, well I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Man uh, at the end because uh, Man two an, wives. Yeah, Man two wives. Yeah, quite an incredible character. But we the the day after, no, sorry, two actually two days after you shot yours, we were back in the same area and we saw the cliff that you shot yours off, and it was literally a vertical drop on the other side. You must have had to walk back round, did you? To go to get to the sheep yes yes yeah. we did we did uh, which was at that point I'm looking for a shortcut to get <laughs> down but no 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 we had to walk around a little bit so it took took quite a while to get to <clears throat> to the ram but uh, and then we we had the the privilege of seeing you back into camp because that all happened 
pretty quickly Simon and I had to sleep in that morning. Yeah, they, they recommended we have a rest day yeah. because of the altitude and we were both pretty beat up. So they said, you know, we'll take Matt out for a hunt. You guys acclimatised to altitude today, which I have to say at that moment in the hunt, I was quite pleased with. I it was, was too. <laughs> yeah, like, we just poked about camp, taking pictures of things all day, which was, um, you know, nice. But yeah, by 7am, I think you were coming back into camp. Within two hours, you'd done the... Yeah, done yeah. the deal and, and, and you were coming back into camp. I remember seeing you coming back over the crest just outside where the you know the, that main that first hill from camp. So with someone someone You're with thinking it, I threw in the towel already. Something something's, got, something's <laughs> happened, yeah. And then I saw someone with a sheep in a basket. <laughs> so yeah, it taught, tell people about how they take that off because at home we're used to putting a roe deer in a in a row sack or dragging a red deer with a rope off a hill. I mean, you're in North America with sheep, you're yeah. probably a little bit more used to that, although you're taking off yourself, but it's pretty basic kit that they use to take the sheep off the mountain. Yeah, it's, it's almost, it's just a big laundry basket is what we would call it. But yeah, the first time that I've ever experienced, hey, we're going to take the entire animal. We're not going to dress it at all on the mountain, take the entire animal and Guts carry it down. Everything. Yep. And what do they weigh? 100, 150 pounds, 140 pounds probably? Yeah. Must be. Yeah, they make it easy. But yeah, stick so it on their head. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and instantly they make the wicker baskets out of bamboo themselves. Uh, we saw it. Yeah, we saw it. saw a guy making one of the baskets. Um, they do not have uh, straps like a rucksack that we'd be used to. They have a strap that goes around their forehead, um, and they basically carry the whole weight on their neck. I mean, it's quite a remarkable feat, and not just the sheep. Moving the whole camp around is done. Um, I mean, these boys, I can see why uh, the British Army set up the Gurkha Regiment. They are the toughest people. Forget Iron Man, forget, you know, those other uh, Spartan, you know, yeah. tough mudder. These boys <laughs> are real deal, the they? proper tough guys. And they're, you know. they're small people. I mean, small, slight and, people. And they're not stacked. Calm. They're not, yeah, they're not stacked muscular. They're just, and, and their determination to get the job done. And they wear like plimp soles. You know, we've got, you know, mountain hiking boots that you can put crampons on and these boys have got plimp soles gym shoes on tennis shoes um, and they move around the mountain as if it's you know well like we're walking on flat ground it's quite remarkable with you know 50 kilos 50 50 kilos of weight on their forehead and neck just remarkable. and some of these guys were young 16 year olds yeah 16 and they, they would they would put a lot of us to shame well in fact i think probably most people in the uk yeah. to shame yeah uh, Matt, and we can get on to uh, to, to Simon take, taking his. I'm almost spoiling it here, but taking taking his sheep two days later. But how did you how did you feel about taking an animal in that situation? I'm sure you like us, you know, and I was sort of documenting it with, with, with Simon most of the time. Had to take a little moment, you know, after you take something like that in that environment. How was it for you? You know that aspect because it's more than just the hunt. Oh, sure. It's um, like we said earlier, I think we all were learning about blue sheep over the last year, year and a half, you know, what they are, where they live, that type of thing. I, I, you know, it's not about the animal, like, like we say. Uh, it's definitely about the experience. And, and yes, after the shot was made, um, you know, I immediately kind of reflected back to Simon two days earlier. You know, I saw the, the emotion, you know, and it just, it reminds you hey, this is why we do this. It's not about the collection. It's not about the inches or anything like that. It's, it's just about the memories and the experience. And um, yeah, I probably sat there for five minutes and, and just 
kind of took it all in, took in the sunrise, took in the height where we were. Um, you know, I, I wasn't able to, to rejoice and, and really have a conversation back and forth uh, just because man and, and kind of broken English. But uh, still, it's, it's interesting how you can still connect despite mm. there you being some... You almost don't need to say anything. Yeah, it's, you know, hunters can connect. It's pretty universal yeah. language yeah. hunting, isn't it? It yeah. transcends language and, you know, you can share a good hunting experience, whatever your colour, language, race, creed, whatever it is, you can level on one thing that's right. and that's a good hunt. And that's, yeah, right. that's quite a special moment. Yeah, yeah. Getting a hug from man at that point was, uh, was, was very nice. Yeah, uh, cuddling up with a Sherpa. Yeah, cuddling up with a Sherpa at that altitude, I was not going to turn away. <laughs> Simon, the day after, I mean, we saw them process the whole sheep in camp, which was a, a spectacle in itself. Everyone's just so busy doing different aspects. Well, and, and having watched the tar being yeah, processed, already. yeah, yeah. And, and watching them drink tar blood, which was something I'd not expected. <laughs> Got to mention yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, the Sherpas waste nothing. Every single piece of meat, every morsel, we talk about, you know, cutting off little bits of meat and making sausages yeah. there's no meat left on anything everything is eaten everything is eaten um, uh, I was you know but I've seen that before in other places where I've hunted in remote yeah, meat's an important commodity and the, yeah, absolutely um, and um, you know uh, they would rejoice in drinking the blood of the tar whilst it's still got body warmth we'll have to try and uh, I'll try and stick up a picture because I know that you took some pictures on the podcast page yeah so people can have a look at the drinking of the blood yeah I, it was one thing I think my western stomach <laughs> used, used to kind of refined sugar and processed meat wasn't quite capable of, of, of dealing with so um, I decided not to drink tar blood as much as I'd like to have yeah. shared in the moment I, I felt... think they would have been willing to share uh, however the testicles on all the animals disappeared there was nothing were never offered up I think no, we, yeah 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 I mean I quite wanted a purse made out of um, uh, the, the nutsack of my, my sheep because he had a good fine pair on him I think that would be able to fill that with quite a few coins but um, yeah they were gone they, yeah, I don't yeah. know what, what happened I think man yeah, it's, them, right? it's, yeah that's right that's why I got a little sick no, no I, uh, yeah now that you you mentioned that I can recall walking up to the sheep and of course I'm looking at the head and the rings and figuring out the age and the first thing man does is walk up and grab his nuts and say this is a really fine pair of nuts <laughs> well maybe to you there you go here we were looking looking at, at the top end he's looking at the back end yeah that's right <laughs> Simon we went out the day after and now it was pursuit of sheep for you and that yeah. was that was a tough day Herculean day it was wow. um, uh, and actually as I woke and up dangerous. <laughs> and dangerous and when I woke up I definitely had altitude sickness um, that yeah, was you, that was a bad day for me the morning shit if I yeah, no, the, 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 that morning I wasn't in good shape, slept badly um, and had a headache. Um, but, you know, it, if you sleep in a tent and it's cold, you get a headache because your head's cold at night. So there's lots of factors. We were up before sunlight and it was minus five, I would suspect. I mean, the minute you got outside, your water bottle froze up. So it was cold. And yeah, if you've got, you know, cold around your neck and ears and forehead and back of your neck, you can get a headache. So there's a lot of contributory factors. Plus I was still shattered from the, the, the sort of task. Even though I'd had a rest day, you know, we'd still really pushed it to get where we got to. Um, but uh, thankfully my um, dutiful cameraman Byron had brought some uh, headache tablets which, which helped to um, uh, deal with my situation and remedy where I was feeling um, and then the sun came out 
and that helped lift the spirits. Um, uh, we then had to, we, we put in a 12 hour day um, uh, across some of the toughest terrain I've ever been. And there is only not. about 12 hours of light. <laughs> there is only about 12. Well, we left in the dark and got back in the dark. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a very very tough day. Um, they um, found some sheep on the backside of a mountain obviously one area had been disturbed by the fact that a sheep Matt had shot his sheep so they knew there was another area with some excuse me with some sheep in it so we went round we kind of traversed a big mountain to get round there uh, we actually dropped in altitude and then we went back up to, to spy into this kind of massive bowl area there were some sheep there um, we followed them for all morning and then by the time we got to them it was a it was an immature ram that was with them 12 ewes in an immature ram so um, they then decided it was too dangerous to go back the way uh, it would be dark by the time we got back to camp so we instead we'd go over the top of the mountain that we traversed it wasn't dangerous at all so um, Simon's face has just dropped right now it, it, it was yeah. it was um, probably 1500 feet of you know, maybe yeah, I'd say 1350 to 1500, uh, sorry, 15,000 uh, feet uh, of altitude high. So we had to climb 1,500 feet of boulder field, uh, and the boulder field wasn't just you know a few rocks. It was anything ranging from gravel all the way up to 10 foot boulders, yeah. and the whole thing was moving. Um, you could tell every time you put your foot down, you could hear. 20 yards away rocks moving so the whole thing was interconnected like a badly put together set of lego and you know or actually the way that we described it they were like shelves so i don't know if anyone is familiar with those fairground coin oh, slots yeah. where you've got a shelf that pushes out and there's more coins and eventually a whole stack of coins fall that's how it felt you looked up there were shelves and you just felt that there were rocks pushing more rocks and at any moment you know your your time could be up genuinely i was pumped with adrenaline because it was an extremely hostile kinetic environment and i felt very frightened by it um yeah. I'll, I'll back you up on that i mean i've done we've all done some things that are slightly on the edge when you're hunting and you're kind of pushing yourself you're maybe not evaluating risk the way you would do when you're back at home but that it would, was genuinely dangerous that because it wasn't you didn't really have much control about what was going on you just had to put one foot in front of the other and get yeah, to the and, top. and every single step if your foot slip you're going to break your ankle so not only have you got you know the whole lot might come down like a house of cards on top of you you've also got to watch mindfully every single step you take is on slippery big and small granite boulders some moving some solid you know it was literally you know rolling dice like are you going to get through this irritatingly and uh, you know frustratingly you'd watch the guides they'd go up it like a bloody blue sheet themselves yes. and we're kind of like stumbling over everything you know again they evaluate risk in a different way if you've grown up in this environment you you can manage the risk thresholds higher isn't thresholds it? higher and they know that they're going to be okay and that boulders have never slipped before but it could you know and we'd been around boulder fields you know for the whole of the week we'd seen them and i hadn't seen any um slip we hadn't seen any any you know uh, ground slides or anything so the chances of it happening were slim but it was a, a an ever-present reality so and now you have to make sure that your wife doesn't listen to this podcast <laughs> yeah i think i've got some explaining to do when i get back oh everything's going to be fine darling there's no risk involved in this hunt at all but genuinely you know there were moments of uh, but um so one of the big things for me and on this day it really um clarified in my mind um there are moments when you look at a task in front of you and you see you know 1500 feet of boulder and you just think and at the top it's almost sheer vertical you look at it and you think there's no way i can do that there's no way a human, we both looked at each other there's no way a what? human being can do that it's yeah. just not possible but sure enough step by step 
we made it up there and we made it up there safely and there weren't any accidents and we took our time and it's amazing if you set your mind to something what your body can achieve uh, and you know taking a very nice philosophical point away from the hunt for me is that um, uh, you feel good when you've achieved something that you don't think you can do and I genuinely didn't think I could do that and there were moments on the hunt where I climbed mountains and I didn't think I'd be able to get up them um, and I managed to achieve that and you know back in normal everyday life sat behind my desk there are mountains for me to climb in my inbox every day <laughs> and there's mountains for me to climb with some of the clients I work with and so on but step by step you can get your way through it and you'll be surprised what you can achieve so you know I've got two young kids if I can try and impart some of that learning on them and I hope one day they want to do stuff like this too and that they can understand that actually from an experience like this you can become a better person in your everyday grow, life yeah. grow as a better person and you can you can become stronger and you can become mentally more robust um, from experiences like that that's awesome you know what a great thing to be able to take away from great experience but also I've developed as a person I think because of putting myself in some hardship which I think is fantastic uh, Matt, we're, we're almost on, on Simon's uh, sheep day now. Just, just touching on what he was talking about there, you've both got families at home. It's time away from home and there's also, also an element of risk. How, how, do you balance, how do you balance that? You've obviously both got supportive wives to be able to um, you, support ne families. Nearly. Yeah. nearly. <laughs> nearly got you don't go into details <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you plan these things with them. No, no, no. I have a, I have a wife that uh, is very supportive in this. She knows that you know I, I love an adventure, and uh, I think human nature with, with most of us is, is, hey, how far can you push the limits as far as the human body, mentally and physically, and and that that was the draw on this hunt. But uh, but yeah, having small kids at home, you you do think about it. I mean, this is just natural. Um, but uh, yeah, there were there were parts of the trail heading up that second day that. I thought to myself, "Hey, this is this is not the safest place to be by any means." Um, so yeah, just one step at a time. But yeah, maybe she won't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, when you look ahead of you, and you can be overwhelmed by the task ahead, and that's what I kept thinking: is, "Oh my God, that's four hours worth of climbing. How are we ever going to do that? How's my body going to, you know, cope? How have I got the strength in my legs to get me up there?" But you just focus on what's immediately in front of you <clears throat> and trust in the guides and that yeah. you've got the you right got support it, around you. Um, at you. You have to, there's no other choice. Um, and you do get there and the sense of achievement from doing that is massive. You know, you feel good about yourself because you've overcome something that you weren't sure that you, you were going to be able to do. And again, when in everyday life do you, when you're a kid, you're constantly challenging yourself. But as an adult, you've that's all happened so when do you challenge yourself um, outside of your comfort zone in normal adult everyday life very very seldom and so to do this stuff I think is it's really life reaffirming and I it think that's a, yeah very much so and I think that's you know for me as well another one of the main reasons I like to come and do you know more remote hunts is that you push yourself and I think that that is good it just kind of like reboots you and gives you a bit of a you know sense of perspective um, on everyday life actually. I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that our, our guide might be sitting around. I'm just wondering whether we should uh, go and see. Has anybody had a message from him? Not yet. Our outfit? Not yet. Okay, if we haven't, then that's fine. Um, we can carry on. We should be able to see him through the window. Um, the Mountain Buddha. The, the Mountain <laughs> Buddha. It says who? Oh, 10 a.m. minutes, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, so the day after putting in that quite mammoth day, we were back at it, Simon. Uh, yeah. And we were, we were lucky enough that that day, 
um, Matt was able to join us. So we, we all got to enjoy the experience of your hunt that day. Yeah, so just to sort of, uh, the precursor to that is that on the way back from our 12 hour day, um, and it was brilliant, they'd been spotting all day. And I'm like, hey, is that a group of sheep over there? Yeah, and I spotted, I yeah, spotted a group of sheep um, <laughs> uh, in some sunlight. I mean, it was just fluky that I saw them. But 15 minutes of light. 15 it? minutes of light left. And I saw a group and there were two mature rams with them. And um, they weren't far away from where Matt shot his, it, funnily enough. Um, uh, but it was the way that the light fell they were grazing in the last few um, minutes of sunlight um, so we had a, a you know a tentative plan for the next day for, for heading out but you know I felt pooped when we got back 12 hours yeah. of, of you know pushing it and being you know scared and full of adrenaline and all that stuff um, so yeah we, we got back had a catch up with Matt and we you know were delighted that Matt could come along and join us on on the next day um, I've woke up feeling I thought I'd wake up feeling really battered I felt, felt strong I woke up yeah, feeling really crap <laughs> yeah, you felt bad that day it's funny how it like it was Weird. just up and down you know but I felt strong I felt like I'd finally got my mountain legs I felt that I was dealing with the altitude at certainly at 14.3 which is the altitude we're at I was able to replenish the oxygen better than I had done all week um so um yeah set off feeling quite good within half an hour we we're under headlamps we'd um we hit 15,000 feet and then bam the headache hit you know suddenly that 700 feet of elevation increase had, had given me a headache and I knew it was going to be a you know another tough day um, we got to where the sheep had been or the scout had look over probably not again not far from where Matt shot his and they'd moved not a bit they'd moved you know a kilometer down the um, which is uh, a long way in the mountains yeah, because to, it's not a straight line of kilometre if you look with the binoculars, but to get there, it's three kilometres because you've got to go down a valley, then back up over a boulder field and around, and you know all of this is at altitude, and you know it's you're just thinking, okay, I've got a long day ahead of me. You know, maybe we won't even get a chance at these because they were feeding away outside of the the area that we were in, and we were already at you know fifteen three I think it was at that point we were pretty high uh, and then uh, we had to drop back down probably drop 500 feet of elevation it's all time taking and then suddenly out of nowhere there's a lamb a blue sheep lamb just walking up towards us it was like what 70 meters away it was just below me super bizarre really bizarre mummy wasn't with it daddy wasn't with it and we're like that's really strange guides didn't seem to care very much and I was thinking the, the last thing we need to do now is spook the lamb it runs into the group of adults and then they're all gone out of the area but the guides were kind of like I was like have you seen the baby have you seen the baby and they were kind of like poo-pooing it as if like, it doesn't matter don't worry about it sure enough we spooked the lamb the lamb ran and it started running towards the adults so suddenly there's loads of pressure now again it's like three kilometers worth of run towards the adults but if it's on its own it's probably from that group so the chances are that when it catches up with it it will be spooked and then the whole lot will take off so you know, we're then in a situation where we're, um, uh, the pressure's on, we're all running, it's all a bit tense, you know, everybody's trying to move up to an area. There's lots of sort of weird plateaus of dead ground that we're trying to move over and move up and I can't keep up with the guides. I'm out of breath because we're at, you know, 15 and a half, then moving up towards 16,000 feet. Kept ramping up. Kept it? ramping up and then, you know, there's just so, so many factors at play and, and the wind was on our backs and we knew that, you know, we're probably not going to get a chance at these. We got to like the highest point and then there was a big plateau in front of us and uh, man the guide saw a lamb uh, and then another lamb and, and then and four in the end moving around this kind of like this plateau with a sharp it's like, cliff it was like something out of middle earth wasn't it yeah it was yeah. fully lord of the rings the whole place was middle earth you know like and actually it was on its way to mordor this was like the, the, the bit behind it yeah. looked really nasty anyway we knew that this group was um 
this group was the group that um, we'd seen and we knew that there was two mature males with it uh, in the group and um, I got in a good shooting position. Um, I have to say at this point, shamelessly, I'm going to plug product, not because I work with the companies, but I think without that product, I don't think I would have been able to put in the shot that I did. And very genu rapid, wasn't it? genuinely, we were in a you know very fast situation where I had to process a lot of information. I'm grateful to all the people that have ever given me any training and uh, the equipment and products that I'm lucky enough to use. Um, I had a Sauer 404 XTC rifle which is the carbon fibre um, breakdown rifle, modular rifle. Um, I took it into camp, broken down in a tiny little carbon fibre case, put it together, it was bang on zero, ready to go. Um, I had a pair of the Leica HDB binoculars and before I left um, I'd programmed in the load that I was using, which is the 200 grain Precision Hunter Hornady ELDX, and I'd put the de uh, the, the, the exact load data uh, onto an SD memory card, which I'd put into the binoculars. So the binoculars were, were good to go with the exact round that I was using. Uh, it might sound like this is just going into science fiction, but actually what I'll come to tell you is it made, a, made all the difference at the moment. Um, the binoculars at that, I didn't have a ballistic turret on, so I unscrewed the top of my um, uh, scope cap knowing that I was going to have to dial. Now, there were variables that I wasn't... You had it on, it was on zero, wasn't it? It was on zero. I'd zeroed at 100 in camp, but um, uh, the reality is I live at sea level. So if I'd zeroed my rifle in the UK, we're now at 16,000 feet or 4,700 metres or 800 metres. So uh, barometric pressure is different at that uh, height and uh, bullets travel differently. The temperature, probably minus two, minus three things happen differently with trajectories in those temperatures. The angle, it was a 17 degree angle between me and, and where the mature sheep ended up uh, uh, moving out from, and it was 346 meters. So there's all these things happening. And, you know, I was um, fortunate enough that I've practiced with the binoculars enough times I was able to range the, the the mature male, and literally, it moved up on this plateau. It was Just like that. Prob boom. It was boom. It was there. I had probably three or four seconds to range it, dial in. I put 16 clicks of elevation onto my scope. Uh, the scope I was using was the uh, 1.8 to 12 by 50 Magnus I, fabulous mountain scope great balance between light and uh, light transmission and weight really really good uh, scope and um, even though I didn't have a ballistic turret I was still able to dial on 16 clicks of elevation the binoculars had taken into account the barometric pressure the temperature the angle the distance and it had used my exact trajectory that I'd programmed into it via the SD memory card to tell me 16 clicks of elevation all in 0.3 of a second now I was then able to concentrate on putting a shot on the animal rather than thinking about holdover or guessing or any of that stuff. I was able with, you know, the, and we filmed it. So I'm sure if people listen to the podcast, they'll also want to watch it. Um, it literally is one second away from walking out of Middle Earth and into Mordor. Yeah, that, yeah, was, that, that was why yeah. time was so crucial because it was like on the horizon of that little plateau. Yeah, it, it was, and, nowhere. And, and, and it was, it was phenomenal that I was, you know, I was, I had like, super bench rest very comfortable position to shoot from um, I shot um, single shot and it uh, you'll see in the in the video but the the ram runs left and I, I instantly reloaded because I thought I might have to take another shot and I was waiting for someone to call where the shot had gone and then I heard everybody saying he's down he's down he's down because you know I, the recoil of a 300 wind mag um, uh, even with the muzzle brake I was kind of I didn't see exactly what had happened um, but I'd hit him you know probably the best shot of my life it was just behind the shoulder halfway up the body and it had clipped the top of the heart and it had double lunged him and that was it end of so um, yeah I mean with all those factors 
I have to, you know, without that product, I don't think I'd have been able to. It would have been guesswork, and what it wasn't was guesswork. It was a calculated, accurate shot based on all the variables that had been inputted by me and by the binoculars. Mm. And then you've got to say thank you to the rifle for being accurate and the ammunition for doing the job when it hit the, you know, for. for holding the zero and for for you know doing what it needed There's to a do a lot of components to lot, make a shot in those in that yeah. kind of environment at that kind of range and i was you know i was very very lucky that it all worked out i've made shots like that before and it hasn't worked out so just you know probably the most important shot of my life it did work out and i was super super happy but you know it goes to show that you know there people might think of some of the features and benefits of these products as you know either science fiction or just sales gimmicks in this situation they were absolutely vital um, to me being able to put the shot in that I did so I'm you know very grateful that I picked the right products for the hunt basically. But importantly you practice with stuff. I pra don't I, practice with it. Yeah it's and, and, and I know that you know in, in Europe people look at a 346 meter shot as reckless and some people do um, there's no way you could close it down now I had a hundred meter shot on a, a tar which is you know a, a gift that's a gift from above in this environment um, but the uh, shot on the sheep was quite typical and actually they can be longer than that so if you don't practice you're not going to be in a position to you know seal the deal when you need to. Unless you've got weeks to wait to get a closer range. Yeah. If you, when I mean, we were there for eight, nine days, like we were saying, yeah. then the opportunities are fairly far and few. And the, the other thing is, if you make a shot at 200 and you don't make the right shot and you wound it and you then end up, you have to shoot a wounded animal further. Um, you know, you need to be prepared to be able to do that. So, you know, I would, I would suggest anybody that's planning on a mountain hunt, go practice. You know, go practice at long range. Invest in the right equipment. Um, Leica makes a very good handheld rangefinder as well if you can't afford the... Mind you, if you're going on a blue sheep hunt, an extra couple of grand for the best pair of binoculars that you can buy is probably worth doing. Um, and, you know, it's a difference between a hunt successful or a hunt failure, um, I would say, and, and it's worth the investment, you know. And it, I, I got a massive satisfaction from it all coming together. It was a good feeling, really good feeling, so... Matt Simon was saying he used 300 Win Mag there. You were also shooting 300 Win Mag. Any reason for the caliber choice? Uh, just a tried and true caliber that I'm. I started shooting that gun in 2011, and uh, just very confident with it. And of course, back in the states, 300 Win Mag pretty much allow you to harvest uh, any any animal mm. there. Uh, maybe a bear might give you some some issues, but yeah, 300 Win Mag is is the one that that I've always shot and and, and will continue to shoot very happy with it yeah I was um, I was slightly sad that um, Hornady's new 6.5 PRC uh, wasn't available no one had chambered it yet um, um, or I, I know that there are some manufacturers um, that I have a relationship with that are going to be doing it in the near future um, it's basically the, the popularity of the 6.5 Creedmoor they've they've um, created a short magnum version if you're going to call it that it's 250 feet per second faster than a 6.5 so Creedmoor for the environment we're it in. is a laser beam yeah. it's a perfect mountain hunting caliber low recoiling it's, it's built on a short action um, not massive cartridges there's no belt that's the one thing I don't like about the 300 win mag is the belt and that can sometimes give you feed issues um, but yeah I would love to have tried that um, in the mountains but sadly I was, to go and do it again. I'll have to do it again <laughs> yeah I'm sure there'll be another opportunity another time but I almost brought a Creedmoor with me actually I feel that the Creedmoor maybe on Creedmoor was on a previous hunt that we weren't on yes yeah. The, yeah, a couple of guys um, uh, two, two brought a Creedmoor and shot sheep at long distance with a Creedmoor 
more. So it is a very capable caliber, but that is a caliber you need to understand and learn. You definitely need to have um, an, an understanding of what the ballistics are doing, the binoculars because of the altitude and the angles and so on. I'd say you need that ballistic solution. Um, but the Creedmoor is a very competent caliber. It's you know it's known as a giant killer in the states. Um, you know you can kill an elk with a Creedmoor no problem at all at long distance. It's been in the states longer than we've had it in the UK, but growing growing in popularity, Matt. Yes, I hear I hear more and more stories about it. Um, I'm not that familiar with it just because uh, I've been very comfortable with my setup. However, um, I, I, when I get home, I will do some more investigation on it. Uh, it's very enticing. Of course, as hunters, <laughs> we're always looking for something for else. new calibers and, and new toys and, and that yeah, type thing. A good so, excuse. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Simon, just to kind of wrap up wrap up your hunt. You, you took the shot. We saw the the ram go down. It was quite a trek over there. Yeah. And then you know you you saw it uh, there at your feet. Yeah, I mean, that was your blue sheet. It, it wasn't about inches. Mine was a mature male, but it wasn't a record book mature male by any stretch of the imagination. But that d didn't matter to me. I wanted something that was representative, um, and um, that will remind me. You know, I'll look at that at home, and it will give me a memory of the whole trip. It's not for me about creating. A, um, I don't know how to say this politely. A, a, you know, a, a trophy room where I'm just showing off things. For me, it's about remembering and respecting experience, and right. it's experience. Yeah, it triggers memories. Every time I look at a piece of taxidermy at home, it triggers a memory. Um, uh, you know, I, I I didn't feel as emotional as I did after the tar. Funnily enough, because I'd kind of probably immersed myself in the environment a bit more. The satisfaction I felt was was more than the tar. I felt like the tar had been really gifted to me. It was quite a lucky scenario. The, the sheep, I'd really earned it. So I felt proud. I felt um, a sense of huge fulfillment. And, you know, like that was the uh, apex of the hunt. Now it was about getting home safely, getting back and, and you know, had, had the journey home. So, um, yeah, it was um, that, that was what I went to go and do and I'd done it. So it was a, a you know, a magical moment and and yeah, it's the highest altitude i've ever been on foot it's higher than any mountain in europe it's higher than mont blanc um and we saw the second highest lake in the world we saw the second highest lake in the world we found out afterwards yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know for, for many reasons i felt um a, a huge sense of achievement on that and like i said there were lots of personal um uh, little goals that I'd, I'd overcome and achieved to get there so yeah really special the most special hunt of my life i was very lucky to harvest two animals two wildly different animals in in you know a similar-ish environment tars a little bit lower um but um you know what a privilege nepal is is and the himalayas you know let's not forget we were in the himalayas um that is you know not to be uh, forgotten because it's such a hostile brutal yet you know beautiful. stunningly beautiful place i mean you know what a privilege huge huge privilege matt it's obviously left or oh, left an impact on all of us i think being here but you're thinking to yourself, you need to come back. You haven't even left yet. Oh, that's right. Simon took it's my... It's okay, I won't let your wife hear this. Yeah, yeah. Simon <laughs> took my uh, tar permit. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I see um, some similarities between American Mountain Goat and the Himalayan tar. And um, yeah, I do have uh, a desire to come back. And of course, I've already put that in, in, in Sam Shear's ear. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, such a unique place that oh, it definitely warrants a second visit if you're ever given the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I've hunted in Kyrgyzstan before, very different. 
mentally probably as tough, physically definitely not as tough because you use horses. Anywhere that you use horses, if you're not as physically capable, I mean, do not consider coming on this hunt if you're not physically up to it because you won't have a good time um, and you'll you'll not enjoy yourself. Um, if you are coming, practice, you know, don't just run, which is what I did and that's my mistake. I should have been going out and walking in the hills. You need to take some time to go and walk in the hills. That's super important. Um, uh, the guide and outfitter, Global Safaris, um, guy called Sam Sher, uh, he, who's going to be here in a second? He'll be here in a second. Hopefully, we'll get a few minutes with him on the phone, uh, not phone, on the on the uh, podcast. microphone podcast. Um, he um, he's fantastic. I would highly recommend him. Very professional. Don't feel um, alarmed by the sort of slight lack of communication. They're just very relaxed yeah. people. The Nepalese. Uh, if anybody needs to know any information, you can get me on Facebook. I'd very happily share any knowledge about this hunt. Um, I would, you know, if if you're a man of, of little means, save and come. It's awesome. Like, it is really worth it's it. It's actually, compared to mountain hunting in the US, and you've done quite a bit of that, Matt, it, it's good value here. Oh, no doubt about yeah. it. And we talked about that several times. Um, yeah, I mean, for, in some cases, half the cost of what a sheep hunt would be, or more than half of what a sheep hunt might be in, in North America. So, yeah, not only do you, do you get a great value, you just get a, a great cultural experience. Yeah. I mean, I saved for two years to come, um, and it was worth every every cent. It was really a fantastic experience. Um, would I come back again? Are there other places I want to go to first? Uh, Nepal is awesome. I think I'd probably I've been lucky enough to get both the species that are available here. Um, I would come back, but I think I'd like to go and explore some other places first. Not because I don't enjoy Nepal, but just because I've there's got... There's the whole world there. There's, you know, that's the explorer gene in me wanting to go and go and find some other places. But I genuinely don't think, and having spoken to other people and watched Jim Shockey's shows and, you know, being in the hunting industry, I've not heard of hunts that are as, as tough as this. This is really hardcore. So, like, if you're... It's the altitude, it's the physicality, it's the, the mental toughness. You know, if you want to really challenge yourself, Nepal's the place to come. Matt, on the, the, the last night we, we camped at the helipad where we, we, we came in and where we went out and we were, we were treated to, to something I haven't actually experienced anywhere else in the world which was a, a celebration from everybody involved and uh, yeah, we were dancing around the firelight, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> including you. A, yeah, which is rare. Uh, such a unique experience when they brought in the, uh, the mountain cake which I still don't know how they baked the cake. But, no, uh, neither do I. Yeah, like they probably the, like the guts of the tar or something. They probably like created turned some it kind, into flour. Yeah, it's some kind of oven, and you know, like probably best not to investigate too hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, hearing them and seeing them come in. Uh, not, I wouldn't say chanting, but singing probably a, a, a local song uh, that they all knew was was also impressive. They all were singing, not just not just five or six of them. Uh, but yes. They did pull my leg and get me out there by the fire. I was trying my best Michael Jackson impression for, for, uh, for man, since I, I know that's his favorite uh, artist from the States. But, <laughs> but I did a very poor job. But no, it was a, it was a great night. It was, they were just was so a, happy to have us all there at the end and it be successful. It yeah, was it was tremendous. A fantastic way to celebrate and kind of shore up the, the week and the experience as a whole. Yeah, and interestingly, you know, it was it was three days hike to get to the sheep area, and it was three days hike to get out. It wasn't that it was uh, it, like it required so much commitment to be hunting. From everyone, yeah. You know, it's not a because there's no we didn't get helicoptered to the place we started hunting, which is often what happens in New Zealand. 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's a very different style of hunting. There are people that hike into the back country in New Zealand, but often if you're going there as a hunting tourist, you'll get dropped off where you start to hunt from. So it's a different kind of hunting. Um, uh, but you know, we'd done sort of six, seven days worth of travel just to get hunting, you know, there and back. And so um, for them to kind of open up to us a little bit there was a they were a bit reserved and they were just you know eminently respectful of us because we're the clients some of these guys are earning five dollars a day you know that's the reality and so they see us coming in with all our flashy kit and sat phones and this that and the other and it must be a bit bewildering for them but on that moment we all shared a sh that evening we were all we, the same yeah we shared a moment together and we just enjoyed hanging out and um a bit of leg pulling and you know it was just it was fun it was a really really nice way to kind of wrap up the trip um, and um, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned is uh, the benefit to the local community. Yeah, I was actually yeah, yeah just gonna, it, it's, that it, and also the guy. Um, I think the story about man, his history is quite interesting. Just yeah. to finish up on that and the benefits. I mean, you know, us being us, the two of us being there as hunters, there were um, uh, 26 people directly employed as a result of what we were doing. There were two government uh, game wardens there, so that's they were there all the time, the whole time. Yep. So for every hunter that's there, there has to be a game warden, which we paid for to be there. Um, we pay a community support fee for every animal that's harvested, which uh, is given directly to the community to stop them from wanting to poach to give the animals more value. Um, the heli even the helicopter that we flew in to the remote area in then flew to Kathmandu with some of the um, villagers who needed hospital treatment. So if you that live was like in, a spin-off of us being there. Yeah, one. so um, yeah, we paid for a helicopter in, it was going back to Kathmandu empty, they filled it with people that needed to go to hospital. So, you know, there were lots of little spin-off benefits, now, not to mention the benefit of us raising awareness of these species and them not just being poached for bushmeat. Which we know, saw. Which we saw. We saw poaching camp, you know, and, and the game wardens that were there and the outfitter and man the head guide are going to take it up with the local community and say we're going to cut your community support fees if you don't find out who the poachers were and get them punished. So, you know, that is, you know, we are benefiting that species by being there. Um, we saw an abundant amount of, of sheep, whether they be, you know, 10 kilometers away through a spotting scope there are lots of animals up there so unless you know we continue to hunt them sustainably um, it's very likely they'll be poached out so and they have a very strict permit system here very strict it's it's uh, there's three I think there's three outfitters that can take you I would highly recommend Samsha because I've been with him um, I think some of the American outfitters are just booking agents and will double the price to come here uh, and won't add any extra value on top of that so um, go directly with Samsha I think you're gonna be sorry about the noise in the background they're just putting wherever we are together for the day so you might hear a bit of waffling on but um, they, they auction the tags uh, there's 20 blue sheep tags and 10 Himalayan tar tags every year and they go into an auction process so there's a flat rate for the for the hunt and then it can be variable depending on how much it costs for the auction tags uh, in that year I was very lucky and got a tar tag at not silly money so I was that's why I was able to do the combo hunt and, and hunt both this year um, but yeah they're, they're, they're rare and and uh, but but it's you know it's a fabulous uh, piece of conservation in a very remote part of the world yeah. so I, I do worry what and, and I think this is true in a lot of parts of the world I do worry what would happen if there wasn't the vested interest of what is predominantly foreign hunters coming in because you can see the care that's taken yeah because there's a reason to look after that area and the animals in it completely and it's not just in uh, Nepal it's in Africa it's in even in 
United Kingdom, you know, by hunting it demonstrates a value and a worth to these animals. Um, and you know, I, I shall continue to do that. I'll, you know, I think it's excellent to see the direct benefit. And, and not forgetting, we've stayed in hotels in Kathmandu. We've bought, you know all sorts of bits and pieces in Kathmandu we've brought money into the local economy so you know you can see it firsthand it's leaving my wallet and staying in the pool and that's I'm very happy with that you know I'm taking something very valuable away for me which is the experience and I'm very happy to pay for that just to finish up because uh, well one I don't sure how well there's a lot of background noise now but I wanted to just talk about man for a bit he had an, an amazing story Matt his sort of poacher come gamekeeper story that's right. <clears throat> that's that's right. You were correct there. Um, now I think you guys had more. Did we get more of the? Yeah, story you got than more you on that story than I did. Mm. But yes, yes, he does have a poaching background. But I, I can't recall the the date or, or the yeah. time that he Dur transitioned. Um, it was during the civil war in Nepal, which lasted for ten years. I think wasn't it from. 2000 in the early 90s mid 90s uh, it, it was 10 years 1994 to 2004 uh, where they overthrew um, the fact that there was a king um, during that period uh, man was a hardcore poacher and um, uh, for, for meat wasn't it for meat yeah and um, he learnt the Dorpatan area which is where we were hunting like the back of his hand because that was his larder you know that, that was how he was feeding himself and his family um, there were some religious festivals which um, the, the result of the religious festival was to go out and hunt an animal to celebrate the religious festival and he'd be the guy that they'd call on to go and do that so you know that's where he cut his teeth and learnt his trade was was out um without tags and without auctions was going and, and you know um harvesting tar and, and blue sheep he, he was quite cagey with us samsha the guide told us about it but when we questioned man he was quite guarded about okay, it Unders well, understand, uh, understandably yeah. um but yeah he is the classic poacher turned gamekeeper um and you can see he's a student of the animals. He absolutely loves them, um, and and you know the way that he knows. Incredibly animated, wasn't he? Very animated. Yeah, I loved his how he gesticulated. You know, when when he was showing us where animals were and how we were going to move around the mountains. Um, awesome guide. Really very memorable to hunt with someone like that. It was a very nice guy. And he managed to pull off the feat of having two wives, one old one and one young one, and they both got along just fine. And he'd spend one night with one and one night with another, and that was all cool. So I don't know how that managed to come to fruition but he you know he seemed to be able to um uh, dance that one uh, and and not get himself into too much bother quite, quite he seemed like a very happy man for he us. seemed like a very happy man yeah <laughs> and apparently that the, the children from each would go to the other on the nights he wasn't with them so yeah. he'd end up with mrs one or mrs two all on his own or and, and he's a christian about yeah, was yeah. was he Hindu and then he's and then converted, he converted to Christian, yeah. yeah. But he kept some of the I don't know which religion the two wise things falls into. I think he might have just picked that one himself. Yeah, I think <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think, with him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but anyway, he a cool guy. Um uh his handle of English wasn't brilliant, but it was quite charmingly brilliant. It was, it was wasn't it? Yeah, it was something uh, so how long are we gonna stay here? Many long. Many long yeah. many long, yeah. No, we liked many long. <laughs> many yeah. long, yeah, when we were spotting how long's it going to be? Many long. So no, he was he was cool, and uh, but the other guides as well were, were lovely. Um, Raju, who was uh, like the assistant guide, the assistant he? guide. Yeah, he was he was brilliant. Um, uh, and actually, when I was struggling with altitude, he uh, graciously carried my pack and rifle at times when I was really struggling with it. And and he was, you know, strong as an ox, but built like a beanpole and could move around the mountains like a goat. He was just a you know remarkable guy. So, but always smiling and happy. And yeah, like I said, they're really lovely people. Um, Matt, just to, to finish up now, mountain hunting for people in the UK is not something that really gets talked about that much. It's 
I don't know, they're, they're for whatever reason, I guess it's because we don't have it on our doorstep, so that people don't realize that the allure is there. But what would you say to encourage people to at least look into it? Because it is, it is an experience that is quite spectacular when you compare it to, you know, there's a lot of great hunting out there, but there is something about mountain hunting. And you've done yeah, quite a bit of it. Just the dynamic of a, of a backcountry trip. Um, it gives you a totally unique experience. I, I think you guys had mentioned that there's a lot of day type hunting mm -hmm. where you are, yeah, you go out okay. for the day and then you come back to a lodge or yeah. uh, some type of a base camp. Um, but yeah, it, it pushes, your, pushes you physically and mentally. And of course, when you're in the back country, there's no distractions and, and you never know what you're gonna stumble upon. Um, whether it be, you know, a pack of wolves, a herd of caribou when you're on a mountain goat hunt, those type things, uh, just, just, you know, it's uh, an experience you know that you can't get anywhere else unless you escape go deep and immerse yourself in that country and, and go from there well there you go i think if you if you haven't been enticed to at least investigate a slightly more wilderness backcountry mountain experience from this then it's probably not for you and uh, hopefully some of the pictures that uh, we put up and, and simon puts up in the in the coming weeks and the help, film help. And, you, the, and, and the film together. that's going to be a yeah. little bit longer but uh will entice you further to look into it but gentlemen, thank you very much for Pleasure. taking the time out. Yeah, and thank Byron, you. thank you for putting up with me and following me around the mountains <laughs> with, with several cameras and a backpack full of equipment. I was very grateful. You it, did a great job. It is a pleasure. It was an experience I will never forget. Thanks very much, chaps. All right, thanks. And that is it for one week, uh, where we bring you our... Product show. Product show. I was gonna. I was going to say... We are now on Overcast, so if you are listening to this on, a, I don't know what you'll be listening to on, most people listen through iTunes and the, the native app that is on Apple devices, but there is now uh, an app that is very popular called Overcast, which is available on Apple devices and Android devices, so it's very simple, and I've, I've downloaded it, I've used it, I would say it's better than the Stitch app. It worked well. Yeah, it worked very well. So if you are using Stitcher right now, then I would consider maybe moving over to this. Hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. Recommendation on podcast app. Yeah. Not 100% sure who you're going to be hearing from in two weeks' time when we come back with our regular podcast with a guest. But I think it might very well be David Wright and Roy Lupton. Which was an extraordinarily popular podcast. It was, yeah. Uh, and it just so it must have been this time last year. I can't remember I if it was before was. Christmas or maybe yeah. just into the new year. Uh, because I know that Roy, right now, as we speak, is sitting in a cottage not about 10, 15 miles from our office uh, flying his eagles. And David Wright is going to be up filming for Field Sports Channel uh, in the next few days. So I'm going to try and find a moment when they are free again. And uh, Daryl and I are going to go up, sit around a fire, hopefully be fed again. Last time I went there, I got dinner, which was great. <laughs> and it was hair, uh, mountain hare stew that had been killed by his eagles. So that was superb. And record another podcast with them. And we'll try and uh, go into a few things that we never got into with them last time. Uh, we are going to be... Well, I was going to say something. I've completely lost my mind of what I was going to say. I have no idea at all. <laughs> I think we pretty much touched uh, touched everything right at the start. Don't forget to enter there the was competition. There was definitely something. Was something? Yeah, oh, well, it was on the, the edge of my mind. I'll run through the few things just yeah, okay. to remind people. While you're trying to drag it from the back of yeah. your memory, don't forget to enter our competition for the set of uh, Smith Optics Interchangeable Lens Shooting Glasses, which will be running over the next two weeks. 
check out the DNA Film Festival Facebook page because there's going to be a ticket giveaway, a pair of tickets, and there's only 20 or 25 tickets being um, available to the public. So you're going to be um, two of very few people. There's going to be about 80 people in total and a lot of drinks and canapes. Drinks, canapes, and... Yeah, it's a first of its kind. So you're going to be at the premiere of the premiere <laughs> yeah. uh, in this country. It's never been done before, so it's super exciting. Go and check out our shop. We mentioned some of the products at the start. Uh, and, of course, uh, the hunt, yeah. the wilderness hunt. I'm going to put a lot of pictures in the next uh, week to, to two weeks to entice you. There's one spot left. And as I said at the start, for people who listen to the podcast, we're going to knock £300 off the price which is on the website. If you go to thepagebrothers.com, click the tab that says Wilderness Hunt, and you can read all about it. There's no new pictures up there yet. Those pictures are from last year. Maybe I can uh, get a few up today. I'll try. I'll see how, see how busy we um, are. But yeah, 300 quid off the listed price there. So That's what I was going to say. Ah, you've remembered. We've, uh, in the past, it's been tell, tell your friend about the podcast month and it, we're way to go into December now and everybody that listens to this show can you please refer them someone to this show yeah that's, the, that's the how we spread the word we spread the love and if you are listening in the UK uh, yeah tell a friend and we, we know that we have a number of Swedish listeners and Norwegian listeners and we have a few German listeners that message us on a regular basis so thank you very much and if you know anyone else that uh, can speak English and would like an English-speaking podcast, then... Let them know. Let them know, because I don't think there is a Scandinavian version of this. Uh, if there I, is, I, let, let us know. If any of the... Yeah, because we'd like to get in contact with them. We'd people. like to speak to them. So if any of the people in the Scandinavian countries know of a podcast that does similar stuff to us, let us know so we can speak to the hosts, because we love doing kind of swap podcasts. Mm. Yes. Uh, and that is it. You're going to hear from us in seven days with a whole bunch of products that we use and it might very well give you some ideas for Christmas. For your Christmas. It's not necessarily hunting stuff either. All, no, no, all, all the sorts time. of stuff. So it, it, it was a really popular show last year. You'll enjoy it again this year. I'm going to have to try and do a bit more preparation than I did last year because last year all I did was go into my drawers <laughs> right before that morning and put in all the stuff that I use and shoved it in a bag and then yeah. arrived with it to record. So I'll try and do a little bit more, a little bit more preparation and thought yeah. for this show. Speak to you in a week. Yeah.